Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Carmen Jones from 1954 with my lovely guest, Ashley Blanchett. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here, Ashley Blanchett, who hey. I now want to call Blanchet every time now. And a bit because <laughs> you said it once I on our show. Oh, I loved it. Okay, so Ashley and I watched Carmen Jones from 1954. Ashley, what did you think? Okay, right off the bat, my first thought is it's really awesome to see black people in leads yes. and to see black people being normal people walking down the street as the main characters, as the secondary characters. That was really refreshing and exciting. So thank you for exposing mm-hmm. me to that. Hearing them sing beautiful music. I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there were so many wonderful aspects to that part of it. Dorothy Dandridge was so gorgeous. Oh. Harry, like everybody was fantastic. I think my one confusion about this was like at the very end of it, I was kind of like, would they have been comfortable putting this on had it been white people? And I feel like there's something about the dysfunction of all the characters. Um, the fact that, like, spoiler alert, the, the you know, main character strangles the other character is just so aggressive and violent and um, dysfunctional that I feel like there's something about it that's a little bit like, oh, you felt like this was appropriate to put on black people. And I don't know if in 1954, I'm not sure that, I don't know if they would have shown a white guy strangling a white girl. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. No, it's so fascinating. This is an opera set to modern day. It's like a very confusing kind of thing that we're not used to seeing a lot in film, I think. Yeah. Um, And it's very true to Carmen. So what reintroduced me to this musical actually was a couple years ago, I saw a really good production of Carmen and it was it was really cool. It was just like this outdoor company. It was called the Pacific Opera Project. They make um, opera affordable for like everyone to go to and they do it in really cool locations. So we were like in this theater in the mountains and people were like singing Carmen at us. And I, I remember watching this right after it and being shocked at how faithful the adaptation was. And in that musical or in the opera, he does strangle her. Um, right. Like that happens in the opera. So I think it's like, I totally hear what you're saying because they make it like, I, I wonder if we, how we would have handled that as a white audience, a white man strangling a white woman. But I wonder if it's because it's in a, con- they put it in a contemporary setting for the time. And usually when we see Carmen, it's a piece of the past. 
Um, mm-hmm, although the mm-hmm. version I saw was contemporary, like they did it like today. They were wearing like modern clothes and it was, it was very cool. Um, but yeah, that was what struck me the first, no, that wasn't the first time I saw it. The first time I saw it was with my grandma and I had no idea what was going on. And I was like, I like it, I think. And then I watched it again after <laughs> I saw the opera and then I watched it last night. So this was my third time watching it. But yeah, that struck me the second time was how close to the opera it actually was. Like how they really did adapt this thing and put it into this like modern experience. However, that being said, I think for me, what I was so curious about is like, it's incredible to see a whole cast of black people and to not miss any white people, not miss have like, you know, you're not thinking about it. You're not noticing it, but then to notice on the production side, how few people of color were involved on that side of the camera. So I think like hearing, you know, the lyrics of like, I love that man. And like, I is Cindy Lou and know that a white person like wrote those lyrics to me. That's I, I'm pissed off about that. Um, that's a good point. No, but I'm glad I'm glad we got those two things out of the way so that we can like talk about the movie itself because I feel like those are those are both valid points, but putting that aside, there's a lot that's really cool about yes. this production and really awesome that it was done in nineteen fifty four at all. Well, and I mean it was done like the white collaborators behind it were Otto Preminger and um like Oscar Hammerstein the second. And they're both people who like were very liberal and very progressive minded. So like at the time, this would have been a huge step forward um, in filmmaking. And it's like frustrating to look at through our lens now. But like back then, at least it was like someone is thinking to make this and to speak this into being. At least we have like that little caveat. But yeah, this movie is really cool. It's such a well-made film. It's like an art piece that's still holds together so beautifully even now. Oh, I totally agree with you. I think it is beautiful. I think it's definitely eye candy. It's definitely beautiful to look at. I mean, and I think Dorothy Dandridge does such a beautiful job. I mean, such an incredible character. I'm going to be like upfront. I thought I had seen more Dorothy Dandridge movies than I had. And I was realizing, like, doing research for this, like, oh, no, I really haven't seen very many, but I felt like I had because there was this movie that came out when we were teenagers called Introducing Dorothy Dandridge on HBO. Did you ever watch it? With oh, I heard of it. I don't think I ever watched it, but I, re- I, but I remember it. Oh, yeah. I was so into it at the time, and I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I remember really loving it. And I remembered loving, like, d- who Dorothy Dandridge was through this movie. So I felt such a connection with her, even though all I've really seen her in is this. So that's yeah. just fascinating to me that like I could feel like, oh God, I really know her. Wait, all I've seen her in is Carmen Jones. I really need to improve on that. Well, she makes such a big mark, on, you know, from just this one movie. I'll do a plot synopsis. So Carmen Jones, very much based on Carmen the Opera by Bizet, who is French, which you know when you're listening to it at the opera, you're like, oh, that's a French word. I know that word. Um, so <laughs> it's about this, uh, this guy, Joe, who's like your basic, normal, average dude. He's a corporal in the army. Um, he's going to go off to flight school. His future is golden. He's engaged to Cindy Lou. Life could not be better. Um, this woman, Carmen, who is a very sassy lady, who is like all about being free and being liberated and like very sexual and sensual. Everyone's hitting on her and she's like, no, I don't want none of you because I can have you. I want that man who I cannot have. I want him. Love has told me he's the one. 
she comes up with this scenario where they're alone together and she kind of seduces him, but she also seduces us, the audience, and we begin to really like her as well. And um, they have this very passionate love affair that lasts about a week. And then she has caught the eye of this boxer, a famous wealthy boxer, who um, wants to be her new boyfriend. And so she basically has Joe kind of ruin his life through a series of circumstances. Like, yes, he makes bad <laughs> choices, but it's also, you know, just unfortunate luck, really. Um, he has gone AWOL from the army. His career is totally ruined. And she's like, mm, you're being too clingy. Boy, bye. So she ends up uh, going for the boxer. She gets an omen that she's going to die. Um, and she really believes in omens. And then Joe goes to, he's like, if I can't have you, nobody can. So he goes to the boxing match. And as she's leaving, he takes her into a side room and strangles her. And then he is immediately caught by the police. Um, and he goes to jail and you know that he will also die. And in the opera that I saw, they show you him die in the beginning. That was actually really cool. It's not in this movie, but they had they like had men line up for their crimes and they like did like a shooting thing and he died. And you're like, how does he die? And then they do the opera. So that was a cool retelling. But how do you know that he will die in, in Carmen Jones? I don't, did they make it clear? I think I missed that. He has a line that's like, they will hang me and then I'll be with my Carmen no matter where you are, Carmen. It's it's that. Oh, gross. <laughs> yeah. She can't even escape him in death. Yeah. I, that's exactly what Harry Belafonte sounded like as well. I really captured the musical moment. Um, so like it's a tragedy, but much like remember when we watched Dark Victory and we were like it's not, we're not so sad when we leave because we're so like thrilled or inspired. To me, this is a very like enjoyable film. It's so full of like life and sensuality, and you just love watching her so much. Her being Dorothy Dandridge, but also Pearl Bailey, you love watching them so much that like it doesn't matter that it ends this way. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like I mean it does matter, but you don't like take that on like you're not leaving being like oh i'm so depressed she's kind of not likable for so much of the film that it's not like some innocent like if he had killed cindy lou would be something else you know yeah that would be rough also i did notice in this viewing that if you're in love you wear pink so cindy lou when she's in love with him she's wearing pink and carmen when she falls in love with joe she's wearing pink and i went whoa way to go costumer that was that was brilliant. That is brilliant. Because she does sort of soften up, like, very noticeably when she's with Joe. And then something about him trying to stifle her just, like, makes her snap. Which I think there was a very interesting line that was just compelling for me, like, for, uh, from an actor's standpoint, where she says something to push him away. And then he says, no, I'll never leave you. And she says, well, I just pushed you away so that I could get you to say that. And it made me think like what an interesting part to play because her dysfunction is that, you know, she's sort of pushing this guy away because she wants him to convince her that he's not going to leave her. It's almost like she has like abandonment issues. It's just one line where she's, she's kind of trying to get him, but you know, it's like the step where he goes too far that makes her too nervous and, you know, makes her snap and feel like she can't be caged in because of whatever trauma she has obviously been through. I think to me, I wonder if that's part of her game because she says she tells us her game in her opening song. Like when we first mm. see Carmen, she walks into the lunchroom wearing like that cool peasanty black blouse with like the red, the tight red skirt and the red rose. 
and her song is like you go for me and I'm taboo like she if you want her she doesn't want you it's like she wants to get you to fall in love with her mm-hmm, so she can mm-hmm. like say nope I'm done um and I think the challenge maybe they face in this movie as opposed to the opera because again I've only seen the opera one time but what I noticed about the opera was that Carmen was the worst and Joe was the worst and you never liked either of them and they always had terrible intentions so to watch this movie you have to like at some point invest in them and love them and so we do start to like Dorothy Dandridge and we do start to like Harry Belafonte they made these two horrible unlikable characters very likable and I think they did that with their personalities, but also the writing gets a little muddled because we're never 100% sure of when Carmen doesn't love him anymore, of her feelings in general at any given point. As you're saying that, I'm picturing them kind of doing this tragic thing where they're passing like two ships in the night where when we first meet the two characters, he's very, very likable. He's very like, you know, I'm a good guy. I, you know, I'm marrying this woman, this beautiful, sweet woman. And she's clearly like, oh my God, I don't like her. She's so aggressive. She's so scary. She's throwing herself at this man. It's too much. It's horrifying. But then there's like a scene or two where they're in love with each other, where like she runs out to him and she's like, Joe, where you kind of start to like them both. And then I feel like it sort of switches where you kind of understand why she wouldn't want to like be stuck with this guy who's not even going out and getting a job and he starts to sort of seem like the villain. And then by the time he's like kind of being the creeper that's like coming to her, the game and everything, like I'm starting to think like, why won't you leave her alone? You're such a creep. And she's just trying to move on with her life. And all she's saying is, no, man, we had our time. And like, what's so wrong about that? Like, you know, why can't he take no for an answer? So he turns into the villain by the end in some ways. Totally. And I think she is chaos incarnate. And chaos can be really fun sometimes. But like, she has completely wrecked his, she hasn't wrecked his life. His choice to be with her has wrecked his life. So like, he can't leave the apartment because the police are looking for him because he deserted the army. That's true. He can't leave the apartment. He can't get a job. She's like, I can't stand anyone being cooped up, but she has cooped him up. Like he has no real freedom. His only choice is to go to jail. So he's like, I gave up everything for you. Can't you give me something in return? Which again, Anytime a woman's talking about being free, I'm 100% on their side. So, like, (laughs) I very much, from the second Carmen was, like, devoted to him, I think that's when we're totally on her side. When she's, like, eschewing, like, I don't want diamonds. I don't care about money. I care about being in love. That's when we as an audience are like, oh, yeah, yes, we like you. But the second she doesn't feel it anymore, she's like, I owe no responsibility to you. I take no responsibility for your actions or mine. Bye. Like, it's, I don't know. I, I, it's very complicated because, again, I do want her to be free, but I get why he was so upset with her because I, I might have been upset too. I think that they could have written that scene a little bit better. I remember thinking about it when she ran out the door because it's a very rushed scene and it's kind of the pivotal moment of the movie. And I sort of feel like it would have been cool if they had written the scene where she comes in completely sure She's just left Pearl Bailey and she's told Pearl Bailey, like, thank you so much. But like, I'm not a two timer. I really love my man. I would love for her to walk in the door so in love with him and something about his not trusting her, something about him constantly being like, where did you go? Who were you with? I don't trust you. I think you're a slut. Like, even if he had like called her 
a whore or whatever and like turned her off in the span of that scene I think we could have seen the light switch sort of go off in her a little bit more clearly and sort of understand why she goes from being in love to running out the door and going to the boxer which is what she does I don't think that they did it well enough with why they almost did though they almost did because I sort of got that he was being a nag he was being annoying they could have written it a little bit further where he just like just didn't trust her his jealousy just like made it clear that like he wasn't giving her enough space yes and then I think maybe it's like they're adapting so close to the opera that they didn't always give certain scenes that they might have needed that little extra thing that we as modern day viewers need. Like what you just described, I'm like, oh yeah, I really would have liked to have seen that. Because it's almost like exposition a little, or like it happens off camera, her annoyance with him. Because you're right, it's like she's in love with him, walks right back into the room, he says something to her like, where were you? And it's that second. Like in one second, she falls out of love with him, and I'm like, wait, that's not enough. That's a normal question to ask. If someone leaves and comes back, you're like, where were you? That's pretty normal. So yes, I agree. We need like a transition. We needed like more of her being like, oh, I wasn't anywhere. Okay, you're starting to annoy me. Okay, like, why do you think I'm a slut? I do want to point out, she puts on a different pink dress in that scene. So she's wearing a pink dress. She takes off her pink dress and puts on a new pink dress that the boxer bought her. And I was like, oh yeah, pink is love here. It is oh. love. Technically it's peachish, so it's not total love. But I was noticing that. I was also noticing how in the beginning with Cindy Lou, he was kissing her fingertips through the gate. And at the end of the movie, he's blowing on Carmen's like toenails. So he's gone mm -hmm. from like the top to the bottom just of like the female body. Because that's a very sensual scene where he's got her. She's staring at him like, look wow. at you're my minion now. You're blowing on the paint on my toenails. He's gone from top to bottom. That's a good one, Sarah. That's a good eye. Thanks. Wow. I was that, proud of that. That one. is so true. And that is such a physical description of the relationship that he has that's so much more innocent and romantic and sweet to one that is sort of sort of almost like dirtier and darker. But it's like we do like Cindy Lou, but Cindy Lou is kind of I love her. I'm not gonna say anything bad, but she could be boring. She's an idiot. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> She's not that bright and she might be a little boring. So like, I get why he's attracted to Carmen. I get why that's there. It's like, I hate that there's always like, she's the sensual one. She's the prim proper one. It's like, can't there be someone in the middle? Like after Carmen, can't he meet like, I don't know, what's a normal human name? Like Belinda, I don't know. That's a 50s name that came to my head. I was like, what's Melanie, great 50s name. Like, can't he just meet someone that's in between Cindy Lou and Carmen? I totally agree with you. I think kind of like that's, that's what their show, well, probably because they came from opera right is that they have these archetypes of like the virgin and like the crazy slut woman and they don't have much in between and they stay so true like every song i was like oh yeah that's exactly those are basically like what those words mean in the opera that's exactly what's being portrayed how cool is this so they really did stick to that what a brilliant guy oscar hammerstein was right am i right you're so like, right just innovative just innovative thing after innovative thing, really trying to push the ball forward. And that's something that I wish was more apparent in musical theater now is that he really did so many things to be like, we're gonna use musicals and acting to really push the ball forward. Yeah. Um, which I think is really 
he he was amazing. Props to you, sir. <laughs> we love you. Thank you for what you wrote. Well, and this was actually based on, I guess, I have never seen this musical, but it was based on a musical in New York that Otto Preminger saw and was like, no, 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 this is wrong. They're doing it wrong. I think it was an all-black cast. And so what we have is like a more thoughtful version of the play, essentially. Wow. I haven't seen the play, so I can't speak to that. That's what I read on the internet. I wish I could have seen the version that they did in 2018. The Naked Oni Rose. Oh, she would be good. And it got rave reviews. I missed it. Otto Preminger, this was his quote about making the movie. Um, he wanted to make a dramatic film with music rather than a conventional film musical. And I think that really is what we get from this. Um, some of my most favorite moments are, there's two right in a row where Pearl Bailey has that song, like the beating of the drum song. And then it's immediately followed by the thousand miles away part. That's my favorite part of the whole movie. The beating of the drum part is so cool because it's like not your typical musical number in that it mainly follows the singer in the foreground and the dancing happens in the background and it's very natural looking dancing. So it's impressive and it's catching you and you're getting a story, but it's not about the dance. I loved that. And then they show the dancers like sweating. They show it how it would really be. It's not trying to be a perfect version of anything. And it looks like it could have flaws here and there, but it's still... Oh, it's so interesting. So I was loving that. So naturalistic that way. Like, I totally understand what you're saying. Like, not yeah. a movie musical yeah. that way. Well, because this is 1954, the same year, like, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers comes out. That is a movie musical. That's like, we're singing and we're dancing. It's perfectly choreographed. And you, this is what you're seeing. And this was perfectly choreographed, too. It was just like the dancing fit in with the storytelling and the focus was on the singer. And... I also was finding it really interesting the way that Otto Preminger was shooting things because he kept cutting off the top of people's heads. And I was like, what is this <laughs> choice about? Why are you doing this? And I think it was like to show the body of things. Like usually people give air on top. And I think he was trying to like showcase the heart, the chest. It was really interesting. I was noticing that a lot because it was driving me bananas at first. I was like, stop cutting Dorothy's <laughs> head off. Stop it, Otto Preminger. Did you love that part? Because that was what I texted you about, the part where they're singing The Thousand Miles Away and they're all in that quartet and it sounds so like eerie and like pushing her. That part is amazing, that quartet yes. moment. And that I feel like that quartet is done a lot. I feel like it was the only song that I was like, oh, I've heard this done before. Well, you would think that all these songs would be done so much more. I feel like so much of it is never done. Although I have to confess, I don't know if you feel this way. Sometimes... Like during the slower opera numbers, I just focus on how pretty their voice sounds and how pretty the background is, and I don't really listen to their words. I'm going to be honest with you. I thought it was kind of interesting that they used a white woman to dub over Dorothy Dandridge. Yes. That was kind of interesting. That was I mean, very although I think the rest of the people, we looked, I looked it up, and it was like the rest of the people did their own voices. So I guess just for Dorothy, they were like, all right, we're using Dorothy, but like we got to get somebody else in here to do this voice. Because like Dorothy Dangerous, she can really sing. She's a great singer. And so is Harry Belafonte, but they don't have like operatic voices. Right. I was looking into that too. I was like, why the hell would they cast a white woman as her voice? And apparently it was because they said she was her quote unquote voice match. Like she could do the best Dorothy Dandridge vocal impression while singing. And I was like, okay. Okay. All right. I mean, I wasn't there. I, I'll give you that. But it's, it is interesting because, I mean, at the time, there were opera singers that were Black. But I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe Marilyn did a 
the best relatable sounds. I'm not saying it's great, but that, cause I was wondering the same thing of like, why would you go to the extent of all this for such authenticity and then cast like a white woman to do her voice? But this was like, it's funny. also the era where like the next movie Dorothy Dandridge has offered is like tupped him in the King and I, and she is very much not Asian. So like, right. You know, it was all mixed up. They didn't know what they were they doing. No. And she plays an Indian woman a couple movies later. Like, Basically, if you were not white, you just played anything that was like a not white part. And that's incredibly Mm -hmm. messed up and terrible. But yeah, do you want me to like tell you a little? You probably know about Dorothy Dandridge, but audience at home, I can tell tell you about Dorothy Dandridge. So I feel like almost everything I know is probably from the movie. Like when I was reading her page, I was like, oh, yeah, that was in the movie. Oh, yeah, that was part of the movie, too. (laughs) Um, I highly recommend watching that movie. I hope it still holds up. I remembered loving it. she has this life where like her mom really wanted her and her sister to take off as like an act. So they were the the Dandridge sisters. They were called something else, but then they were the Dandridge sisters and they were in showbiz kind of their whole childhood, like playing for churches too, just all kinds of different aspects. She was married to one of the Nicholas brothers. He did not treat her well. He consistently cheated, was unfaithful, was not a good husband to her. Um, when she was she was in labor, he took the car to go golfing and did not come back. So she was like, I don't know what to do. I want to wait for my husband. I guess I'll go to the hospital. She got to the hospital really late. They ended up having to use forceps on her baby. And her baby um, ended up being affected by that and having severe brain damage. Um, and could never really like understand that her mother was her mother. And had to be in like facilities a lot of her life. And be taken care of her whole life. And Dorothy always blamed herself for that. And I was kind of like, well, it would have been cool if your husband wasn't like, cool, you're in labor. Bye, I'm taking the car to go golfing. That would have been cool if that hadn't happened. Um, That's horrible. Also, like, what What do you mean the forceps gave her brain damage? Like, what kind of a crazy doctor does that? Don't totally understand. But that's, I one, what happened in the movie. And two, what they had said on the page. They just said because of the forceps. And I was like, well, I don't know what that means. Because people are born with forceps all the time. And it comes out okay. But in this instant. That's what I mean. Like, brain damage. Okay. It sounds like that's an incompetent doctor. I mean, not saying that, like, her husband was looking great here. But yeah. to me, that's, like, malpractice. Well, and she was also married to, like, if you were married to Dorothy Dandridge, you were not a good man. That's kind of, like, she had a thing for Mm. men that were, like, not going to treat her very well and were, like, kind of scoundrelly. That sucks. And yet, not to – the Nicholas brothers had great accomplishments. I do appreciate that. But I, you know, I don't like it when people treat other people. Yeah. (laughs) 100%. To be a lot of men in Hollywood that do this Um, in general. Uh, so anyway, so she had this like horrible experience. They end up getting divorced. She like makes her way up through nightclubs and she's known as a singer and eventually starts getting cast in movies and is very sexualized in these movies. Mm -hmm. Um, like she's in a Tarzan film, very sexualized in this. She eventually gets this movie called Bright Road with Harry Belafonte, which is made the year before this. And she plays like a meek, subdued school teacher. When Carmen comes around, every black actress in Hollywood wants this part because they know it's a great part. Um, And it's a chance to, like, showcase themselves and be seen on a bigger stage. So every actress is auditioning for it. Dorothy Dandridge gets a meeting with Otto Preminger, goes in and is like, hey, um, I don't know if you saw my movie, but I could totally do this part. And Otto Preminger's like, "Mm, no, you're too clean cut. I just don't see you for this. You're going to come read for Cindy Lou, and that's how it's going to go down. And so she's like, fuck this. I know I'm not Cindy Lou. I know I'm an actress and can be Carmen. So when she goes in for her meeting um, 
as Cindy Lou, she dresses like Carmen and delivers her lines as Carmen. And Otto Preminger is like, okay, I was wrong. <laughs> you can have a screen test. And so she ends up eventually getting the part because of that. And they end up dating for four years, her and Otto Preminger, which is like actually kind of detrimental to her career in the end. Why? So while they're dating, Carmen comes out. It's a huge hit. She ends up getting pregnant by him and the studio forces her to get an abortion. And then she kind of realizes he was married, but he and his wife were like never together. You know what I mean? Like, what's that called? Estranged. They were estranged. Mm -hmm. um, she thought he was going to like divorce his wife and marry her. And he does not do this. Dorothy. And he also had this thing where he was like, you should only be a star in movies from now on. Like you are only going to play the lead. Do not accept any other roles. So right after this movie, a couple of roles come her way. And it's like Tupdom in The King and I, and it was another movie, I can't remember the name of it. She turns them both down. Both parts go to Rita Moreno, actually. <laughs> so Rita Moreno gets those roles instead. And she she said she always regretted that because she turned them down because of him and not because of like what she wanted to do. And um, she felt like it really did hurt her career because she doesn't end up making a movie for a couple years after Carmen. Um, she waits three years to make another movie, and it's because she thinks as like this amazing star that she is, the offers are gonna come pouring in because Hollywood is racist as fuck. Like nothing comes her way, you know? That's really like a substantial part. Dude, it's such a freaking toss up out here in this career. It doesn't matter if it's 1954 or 2020. I, I totally understand that, that dilemma of like, okay, do I hold out for the place where I'm at now or do I just, say I'm grateful for whatever comes my way and either way you could look back on it and be like why did I do that like why did I take something that was underneath the place where I was before or you could say why did I do that why did I you know not take parts that were parts and I think it's it's really easy to regret whatever decision you end up making when she is a star you can see it like she has such star quality like she yeah. is on par with Grace Kelly and all those other like big actresses of the day. And she should have had the careers that they were able to have. And it's like a crime that she does not. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that they, that there was this movie at all, to be honest, like that, that white people would go out and see, you know, black people on stage being full human beings at this time. And like excelling in these roles. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I'm thinking about? The way they kiss is so awkward in this time period. And Dorothy does not do it well. I'm sorry. But like, she's, I don't know if it was her or if it was Harry, but like that thing where they smush their faces together so hard that like you can't see a lot of their face. And then they just like twist their head back and forth. And I'm like, okay, did people in the 50s kissed like this they must have well obviously like you know the teenagers did you know that like people who were new to kissing at least watched these movies and were like well this is how kissing someone i love is so i'm gonna like smash my face and just move <laughs> my head but i would imagine that like people used tongue before the 60s and 70s did they not or was it like a new thing that happened in the 60s and 70s. I thought about this. And I think where like French kissing came from is from like French film. I feel like in the 60s, people saw French film and they were like, oh shit, look, they're using their tongues. We should be doing that. 
And I think that's how it started conventionally. You know what's so funny is that you just called it French kissing. And I'm realizing that, oh my God, when we were kids, it was called French kissing. Now I feel like it's just kissing. Like you can't, you can't just like kiss somebody and like hang on to their mouth for 20 seconds like they did in this movie was disturbing. Maybe people had figured out that tongue was great before then and we just don't know because we don't have real people to right? see. They but it always go. looks bad. I was thinking that too because it's like it's like two bobbleheads if you push their faces together and move them around. Like that was the sensation you were getting. Just like the so much neck action. So much, <laughs> like, so much neck action. It's like watching Muppets kiss or something. Yes. It's like there, there's so much... <laughs> You're right. And she did like, it with both of the men, both times. Oh, yeah. God, it was so off-putting. It was so off-putting. I would rather you just, like, stand there and don't move and just, like, <laughs> then, then I Then watch you, like, move your head around like Stevie Wonder. Like, I don't know. It's just, like, not – it's not cute to watch. But, yeah, I do wonder, like – how many people were French kissing in the 40s and 50s? Probably not a lot. Maybe passionate kissing was really just like you kissed with your like full lips and would separate. And would I think it was just like a lot of connecting and separating and like necking, they would say. Where it's like you're, you're next to your necks or next to each other and you're like with their cheek. <laughs> I think that happened. So that leads me to that leads me to believe that like sex has improved. And I'm glad that I'm living in 2020 because I imagine that like for many people in the 20th century, at least the first half, that sex was kind of bad. I mean, if oh. you can't kiss, what are you doing? I just feel like it wasn't talked about, so we will never know. Like, right. there had to have been good sex out there. We'll just never know because it's not in the movies and it's not, wait, but pre-code, everything was very sexy. So, like, we do see very sexual things before 1934, Wait, pre-what? Everything was sexy? Oh, pre-Hays Code. Like, before they put the production code in place, where it was like you had to follow certain rules, oh. it was anything goes. Right. Yeah. And, it like, that's when you have your Mae West. But they didn't have porn. You know what I mean? So, like, I would imagine that, like, whatever you did that wasn't missionary probably felt scandalous. Well, you're making me want to rewatch Mae West, because I wonder if she would be like, no, I'm going to be on top, Cary Grant. Like, I wonder if she gives you that, like, energy. <laughs> But I feel like that probably felt like, whoa, like, who are you, like, climbing on top? Like, I don't know. I feel like most people probably were like, this is sex and this is for having children. And I would love to take a whole course in this, learning about the history of it. I picture us Googling, like, classes about sex before the 1960s. Like, what <laughs> was it like? Why did they Muppet kiss? I hate it. Well, and Singing in the Rain has it, too. I've always thought the kiss at the end of Singing in the Rain looks like the most uncomfortable thing ever. Well, they probably were uncomfortable, right? He, like, did not respect her. She was, like, 18. True. He was like, why didn't you get me an actual dancer? Like, I hate this. You're right. That was Gene Kelly's inner monologue while they were smooching and singing in the rain. You can see it. <laughs> and she's like, I'm 18. This is feels, like, not consensual. I'm going to take us back to Dorothy and just finish out her life because I think the way her life turned oh, yeah. out was not what she deserved. So after this, her career doesn't take off the way she thinks it will, but she still does movies. It's funny because a lot of the movies that I recognized were, you, you know, Too Long Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. 
You've never seen Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar? I honestly don't even know what you just said. It's from 1995. Three drag queens go to a small town and get stuck there. Patrick Swayze. You will love it. It's such a good movie. There's this part in it where they're like connecting with the people from the town because it's like three big city drag queens trapped in this small town. Whatever will they talk about? And there's this old woman and Wesley Snipes and they're talking and um, they bond over Dorothy Dandridge and they just start naming all her movies. And so I was realizing like, oh, that's how I know the names of these movies because of that movie where oh they're bonding over Dorothy Dandridge. Yeah. But you never saw them. I never saw them. But I can tell, like, Malaga. I was like, oh, yeah, I recognize that from the movie. More Spain. Oh, my God. You got that reference. I did, had to look it up. I used to really want to live in Spain. So that's the city I know about. Yeah, so she does Carmen Jones. Island in the Sun is kind of her next, like, biggish hit. Um, and she's also in that with Harry Belafonte, but they don't play love interests. And fun fact about Harry Belafonte, he did have an affair with Joan Collins on that set, which just delights me to no end. She's in Malaga, Tamango, and The Dex Ran Red, and those are kind of the rest of her films of note. And then in the early 60s, she's not really popular anymore, which is less than a decade from this. Um, and she, she marries this man who's abusive and who basically like runs her money into the ground, runs her into the ground. Um, she, she was in business with people who really cheated her out of a lot of money. So at like 40, she's totally broke. Um, her daughter has to be put into a special home because she can't afford care for her. And she ends up like signing a contract. She works in Vegas for a little bit, I think. And she signs a contract to go to Mexico and sing. And um, she kind of has one of those mysterious deaths where she died of a, a pill overdose. And no one is totally sure if it was intentional or not. Um, in the movie... They play it off because uh, her manager finds her and she was very close with her manager, at least according to the film. Um, and he finds her and she's like naked on the floor and it's really sad. But it was one of those where you got the sen sense that like they were going to be together and that her career was going to move forward. And she was feeling really positive about these changes. Um, but we'll never we'll never really know what happened. I feel like that is a lot of times when people end up going down is when like things were start starting to look up. That sounds very believable, actually. And that's horrible. God damn. Oh, what a sad fucking story. Such a bummer of like her versus Harry Belafonte. He leads this great life, has a great career. He's still alive today. He seems like a wonderful man. I guess it's like they did so many movies together. They had parallel tracks and he kind of ended up totally okay. And she really did not make it, you know? That's just terrible. You know the name Dorothy Dandridge, right? But like not because, oh, you know all these movies that she did, all these projects she was part of. So if you're gonna have like a demise like that, you just kind of hope that like at least there's like a body of work that you, you know what I mean? But for her to be like, wow, I'm good enough that I can do a piece like this and that everyone's gonna know my name, Dorothy Dandridge. But at the same time, it's gonna be sort of a frustrating fight to try to have projects and I'm never really going to win again. Ugh. She was a talented performer and talented singer. And we like have these videos of her performing. It's like, I wish that projects had come her way where she could have really taken off. Sounds like she was kind of just like born at the wrong time. You mean like the quote she had where like, he's just calling me when my number's already busy. Like, yeah, if she had been born at a different time, she would have been able to like be yeah. a Beyonce, you know, like be a huge star and celebrated. Yeah, that is a great line. I, I remember that line. Pearl Bailey's trying to get her to go with the boxer and she's like 
called One Man Too Late or something like that. She had so many good quotes. I feel like half my pages are just filled with quotes. The writing was really good, I thought. Yeah? There is that one sergeant that was always out to get him, though. Because he's the one that, like, gets him in the stockade. The one guy that's played by the, the famous guy that goes on to do a bunch of stuff whose name I can't remember. It's like Brock something. Yeah, he was great. Brock Peters. He was the sergeant. He was in To Kill a Mockingbird, Soylent Green, The Incident. He was in Star Trek, which doesn't really mean a lot to me, but I bet it will mean a lot to people out there. He played Admiral Cartwright on Star Trek, so he goes on to have a huge career. He had a better career than Dorothy Dandridge. He had a better career than Dorothy Dandridge. And that's sad, because she's, well, I'm glad for him, but like, damn. Yeah, he constantly was screwing over Joe, but there was that part where he hands Cindy Lou the censored box. And I was like, are you joking with me here? Who who does that? Remember, it was the letter from Carmen, and it's in a box that says censored. Because he's trying to steal Cindy Lou. That's some sabotage. They could have made his character a little more fleshed out so that we really understood, like, why he was so aggressive about needing <laughs> that relationship with Carmen to not, to, you know what I mean? He, he really wanted Joe's life to not go well. Do you think it was just because of the opening scene? Do you think it's just because he was like, hey, Carmen, I'm here, and she's like, no, I want him. Do you think it all just boils down to that and that character is so vindictive that he yes. has no other life but to destroy Joe thrice, three times? I don't know. But if it was, then they should have made that moment a little bigger because I sort of missed it. It could have been more fleshed out. Yeah, but it's going to be a giant plot point. Just like make it really, make it a little clearer for us. Although it did lead us, because he does go to the stockade, we did get a great like topless men scene which I was like, thanks, I appreciate this. They're sexualizing women left and right. Let's let's see some men too. It's something they're very comfortable with black people doing in the 50s, like being violent or sexual, so, or sassy. Ooh, that's a good point. So, You're, that's a good point. It, you know what, I'm probably at a point now where I'm just oversensitive to it, but. No, it sounds like an accurate thing. From my perspective, when I was looking at it, I was like, oh, I see what they're doing. Since they sexualized Carmen, they're going to sexualize the men. And I was like, ooh, equality. And now I'm like, oh, no, just another bullshit trope that they're putting on us. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Got it. It was funny because when you were first doing the plot summary and you were discussing Carmen, you were like, oh, she's this sassy girl who's like super sexual. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is so funny. She's literally just describing like black stereotype after black stereotype. And I wouldn't have thought about it that way until you were describing the plot summary. And I was like, wow, she's she's sassy. She's sexualized. She's like all these things that you were saying. I was like, wow, interesting. Like I, I, and I didn't necessarily like notice that watching the movie. But when you said it, I was like, wow, it's interesting. I mean, they were doing everything they could, right? Like they were definitely moving the ball forward just to have these people be main characters. But, it, but like I said, it's interesting what light they were comfortable showing black people in they were comfortable showing the men as like super violent you know the the man is a boxer joe is strangles her to death like these are violent and that goes straight along with this black stereotype of you know we will bring you harm and we are we're predators and that the women are kind of like vixens who will like take a man and be super sexual but not be like i don't know i guess What's your, I was going to say Curly Sue. Um, Cindy Lou isn't that way. Um, so I, like I said, maybe I'm just like looking for these things now because I'm like, I'm hyper sensitive to it all. But 
it's interesting to think about to, to ponder it's like totally valid because when they were making this and they were like how do we adapt this how do we adapt this because again this is an opera like these things happen in the opera carmen's like a sexual woman in the opera but it was like the the only way they could think to do it well no i guess he is a soldier and she is a working in a factory in the opera but it was like they could only think to put them in demeaning positions. Like what you had said in Christmas in Connecticut. It was like they couldn't think to have made a modern like black opera in a place of like it, 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 he had to be a fighter. He couldn't have been anything else. There had to be musicians. They couldn't have been anything else. He had to be like in the army following orders. It couldn't have been anything else. Like you're right. Within the white scope, the writers could not think beyond stereotypes of what the black experience is. Totally, totally. I'm so glad you brought that up too, because for me watching it, I was like, oh God, how great is it to watch like a feminist thing where it's like, yes, be free with your body, be free with yourself. But then to have that put on top of a stereotype is a whole other complicated situation. So it's incredibly fascinating. But it's interesting because the way that we look at Carmen now as a sort of a feminist, strong, amazing thing, I think is in the 50s is probably looked at as like why she's seen as a villain. Curly Sue <laughs> is the good road, is the virgin that he should have married where Carmen is everything that's wrong and evil. And so I think her feminist ideals of like, I go my own way, I do my own thing probably wasn't necessarily like a positive thing at the time. So like now when we're looking at it, we're like, oh God, how freeing that is. Hearing a woman say, I don't want to get married. I'm not getting married ever, even if I love you. That's really cool to hear now. But then it would have been, you're right. Okay. Then it would have been something like, oh no, that's not okay. She's supposed to be kind of like scary. I think Carmen represents chaos, like chaos and passion. Destruction. She's destructive. I am so glad you said that because it reminded me of her line in the beginning. If you love me, it's the death of you or something like that. She's so destructive. Ooh, I like that a lot. And I think that coming from a decade where what we do is we get married and we have babies and that is what we do. Like we become a wife and we are super excited about it. I would imagine that the opposite of that would be a woman who says, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to sell down with anyone ever. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you. It's, it's the most thrilling, sexual, exciting, but destructive and evil thing they could think of <laughs> powerful woman but that's kind of why it's such an amazing part and I, I would imagine especially in 1954 because how many opportunities do women get to kind of like Betty Davis let's bring it back to Betty Davis who often played villains probably because she was a feminist and didn't say it or didn't know it, but I feel like probably because there was so much freedom in getting to be this evil woman who got to break the rules and go past the boundaries and be sort of liberated in a time when women weren't liberated. But in order to do that, in order to play those strong women, you kind of have to be the villain. Yeah, we never see people sharing the same bed. Sex deemed in any sort of way is like fun or positive. And Carmen shows us all of that. And we even get, I almost feel like a little behind the scenes. Like we see the top of her stockings rolled all the time. And I thought like, what a cool detail that is. It's something we never really see on film a lot. We only see like the beautiful, perfect images of things. They shoot her in this way that's so, so kind of freeing. So even if they're not trying to be that way, it is coming off that way. Like she's enjoying sex. They're showing us a woman who likes sex. And you're right. They must have to frame her as a villain to do that. But it is really cool to see that. 
on film and to see a woman like having fun with that that first scene with joe when they're in the jeep together i did write like no means no back off please because he keeps saying no no (laughs) 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 but like the joy she's having the fun she's having with him the like I don't know, authority she has over him is really fun to watch. She's a badass. She fucking runs away from him onto a train, runs on the top of the train, jumps off the train, just kind of for some fun. She can't be cooped up. But you also wonder if she manipulated the whole situation too. Because it's like she didn't want Joe till she saw he was with someone. Because I was like, okay, how long have you guys worked together? How long have you passed Joe in the halls? The second he's got a girl, you're like, oh, he's mine now. And I just can't help but wonder if she orchestrated that whole thing, if she orchestrated the fight, if she knew this would be the outcome. She's got this, like, I don't want to say spiritual, but this, like, mystical side about her where she believes in, like, oh, no, a buzzard feather is under your door. Oh, no, the nine of spades. When they throw the peach and it hits whatever that thing was, I was like, is that a zodiac sign? I don't even know, but it's a mystical chart. So she's got that whole side to her. So it almost feels like she has this deeper plan, even though we know she doesn't. Like, we know she says she never thinks ahead, but she seems to clearly have some manipulative ties going on all at once. Yeah. For someone who doesn't think ahead, those things all seem to work out so perfectly in a line that you're like, I don't know. Did you plan any of that? No, I agree with you. And I think bringing it back to the opera, I mean, since you mentioned how spiritual she is, I it, it made me think about how in the opera, she's a gypsy. There's sort of an element of the fact that like she might be kind of witchy, like she might be kind of like supernatural in a way, or connected to the supernatural in a way that normal people are not, and almost connected to like dark magic. That's the sense that I got from Carmen watching the opera, like as a kid, my mom loved opera. And so I remember it kind of being like, she's a sort of a dark supernatural character. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was part of the story that she kind of can orchestrate. But in some ways, she's powerless. Like she knows she's going to die and she's kind of terrified of it. It's like the Greek gods and the Roman gods and all that stuff. How there's like the big gods that are like, no, I control everything. But like you are the god of this and you are the god of that. She's like one of those like muses or like those kinds of things. Yeah. Ooh, I like that a lot. I also want to say what I was noticing this time was I said that we we start to really like her when she falls in love with Joe and like sticks by him. But I think the moment I realized in the storytelling this time that we start to think she might be okay is when she gets him to come back to her hometown and the people in her hometown like her. Because in the factory, it seems like she's the enemy of the women. They are not on her side. And it's like all the men are throwing themselves at her and she's like, ew, gross, no. And she does, when she orders a chicken sandwich, I just loved it the most. She's singing and it's gorgeous. She's like, give me a chicken sandwich. And I was like, yes. Oh my God, I love that moment. You're so awesome. She's such a badass. She's so sassy about it too. She's like, give me a chicken sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) She she made a chicken sandwich sexy and cool. Yeah. I love because it's in the middle of her song, like this gorgeous, beautiful opera song. And she's like, it's so out of place. It is so out of place, but brilliant. But I loved it. Um, (laughs) So I love that moment. Oh, yeah. When she goes home and the people in her town, you can see she's from a poor place. You can see that she can kind of fit in anywhere. She's so comfortable with herself that she's like, I'm cool around rich people. I'm cool around like the people in my town. I'm going to be okay wherever I land. But it's to me, it was the people being kind to her and speaking kindly of her that showed me, okay, so maybe she's not quite so like, quote unquote, evil. That's when we first start to see she might be okay. And I think that's when Joe sees it too. And that move with the belt was smooth as 
fuck when she like yeah takes off his ooh your belt's twisted let me untwist it for you yeah and then she like calls him out for being nervous then she's like what are you what are you so nervous about like, i'm just fixing your belt yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like also eat this peach it's quite sensual thank you yeah she's really laying it on she couldn't be laying it on any harder and then she leaves that note that says like i love you more than i've ever loved anybody before like i think that there really is a moment or two where she seems to genuinely care for this person it's not just like a who can i catch it really does feel like it's real for one brief moment to me it feels like it genuinely is real with her whenever she's in love she's 100 percent there it's just she feels no obligation to that love to stick with it. But I don't know because she, I think she did. I think she was super tempted to go off with this boxer guy by, I mean, she was literally tempted by her friends saying, hey, you're you're hungry. You're not eating. You can go with this guy if you want to. If Joe didn't mean anything to her, if that wasn't a real thing, you know, she could easily, her friend even says, just do both. And she's like, that's not me. Like, I think she really... And I, and I feel like that relationship with Joe at that moment is stronger than it ever gets with the boxer for some reason. It just feels like maybe the romantic in me is like, it's real with Joe for a little bit. Well, because I think the moment with the boxer happens after she finds out she's going to die. So then she's like, okay, well, I guess if I'm going to die. Screw everything. I'm going to smush my face against your face really hard. I think with Joe it was real, but I got the sense that this is her pattern. That it's like, she's going to find someone and be so completely in love with them, and that's all there is, and then it's done. And now I'm going to move on to the next person, and I've never felt this way before. I think every time it's like, this is different this time. And that could be totally wrong, but that's what I like felt about it and took out of it. No, I know what you're saying. Like That's kind of her MO. Like, that's who she is as a person. Just, like, fall head over heels. It's not that she doesn't really feel it. Like, she's really authentically feeling it. It's just like, no, this time really is different. That was my vibe. What I think also is interesting, her trajectory, she really does kind of, like, almost escape. And then at the last minute, not escape. She obviously comes from, like, she's poor, right? And her storyline kind of like she gets herself out of that town. She gets herself out into Chicago. She gets herself into a place where she she and her friends have more money. And just the moment when the boxer wins the game or the match yeah. <laughs> is when she, I don't know what it's called. I don't know either. <laughs> um, is when death finally catches up with her. And to watch her life sort of like her, her, her life kind of improving and improving and improving and at, at the peak of it when she's really kind of at the height of where she could get her life to be, to have it be taken away. I feel like that's such a trope too, though, of like, if you live big, you got to die big. It's that kind of idea. Mm. It seems like anytime mm. there's a huge personality like that, they don't make it out of the movie. I know, I <laughs> they know. They have to have some like big tragic end. And what I think is jarring too about that whole scene, like the the strangling, the personalness of that, the all of the violence that you were talking about, like how yeah. they put that on African-American men. And then, but it's so quick. It like, it happens. And then the movie's just kind of done. I know, I thought that too. I was like, I would think at least they'd have her friends run back or the boxer run back there like, and see her and see the destruction. We don't even see that. We just see him walk away. It's a back room. And like, we've had this whole grand movie with sets and locations. We're in a storage closet now. And that's where Carmen ends, like in this, this pit. And he follows an MP out. 
and that's you know, he's told us what's going to happen because he's going to follow her wherever she goes, even in death. But that's it. That's the only closure we really get on the whole piece. And we're kind of like, what What was the greater message of the opera, Carmen? Like, what are we, are we supposed to take anything away? Well, I think that a lot of it is just the thrill factor of watching life at the absolute highs and lows that it could possibly be. And, and the idea of life and death and what, what can you and can you not control? Like, what's your fate? When she like turned to go up the steps to see the boxer like the choices that she was making it was very much like because I knew she would die and it was like oh she's getting closer and closer to her death by making that choice by doing that thing and there's this movie called Black Orpheus that my mother used to make me watch it was so creepy it was but it was black people in Brazil and they're speaking Portuguese but in it death is a person dressed up as a skeleton and is following her around so like she's at carnival and then she like she sees death and she's like starts running away and death is like trying to catch her like as she's running through the carnival. I think that story is based on Orpheus, obviously, like the story of him turning around and yeah. her being dead and everything. And um, But I think it also kind of reminds me of Carmen and about how this very thrilling, dramatic choice to have a character know that they're going to die when we first meet up with them or sometime in the middle of the, of the plot so that you can see how they're kind of doomed. It's very Greek. You know what I mean? That, they, that we know they're doomed from the start. And it's almost sort of like, what is fate and what is personal choice? And like, is there such thing as the choices or is death just following her this whole time and she can't escape it? She's kind of, in this movie, kind of being like, I am just surrendering to the fact that death is coming. And every time she makes a move, she makes a turn, she goes up the stairs. It's like, oh, she doesn't even know, but she's definitely bringing on her own destruction. I hadn't thought of it that way, where a lot of characters in those situations don't live their life fully. Like in Moulin Rouge, Nicole Kidman's character knows she's dying the whole time. And she's like, no, but I have to be a star. I can't be in love. I've got to be a star. And I'm like, girl, you're dying. Like, who the fuck cares? You're going to be dead. Just go off with you and McGregor. <laughs> totally. Um, totally. Like, That's well, such a why, huge is, hole. why is this a thing? Um, That's such a hole. <laughs> like in Carmen, it's she really does live every day as if she is going to die. She lives wholeheartedly, full of passion everywhere she goes she is 100% like in it so yeah you do get the sense she is making the most of her time even if it's in a destructive way and you get the sense that Carmen is wasting no time absolutely and that's why it's crazy because at the very peak of her life is when it gets snuffed out what do you think would have happened if death was not like called for her do you think she would have just like burned out and given up or do you, like she cannot exist that way no one can live that on fire can they I would need a break well, I think she just needs a little therapy, it seems like, because she she's obviously dealing with a lot of trauma. Well, like when we meet her, she's definitely like she's an attention whore, first of all. Like she just needs to like get a chicken sandwich and sit down and eat it and be fine. Like obviously she's going through a lot when we first meet her. And I think it just like obviously continues that even when she's got someone who loves and cares about her. It's not something that she is able to take in in a healthy way. Yeah. And it really does seem like destruction follows her wherever she goes. But I think she's genuinely just doing her best. So I just feel like I'm not sure what would have happened to her if she didn't die. But I, I do know that the girl needs 
some inner work. She needs help like establishing boundaries that are not just like make it or break it. Because her boundaries are like, I'm sure. all in, I'm all out. She needs, I also sure. need to work on boundaries. <laughs> Listen, and I feel like we all know people like this, like people that run, people that are scared about things, people that aren't cool with intimacy. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's issues that we can all sort of relate to in Carmen and see in ourselves. And she just kind of an extreme of a lot of these issues. But she's also an extreme of like really cool aspects, like being strong, being sort of a feminist being sexual being a fucking badass that's why she's such a compelling character because she is so thrilling so passionate so exciting so full of life and yet so destructive so full of death so troubled there's never a moment she's not true to herself we didn't talk about harry belafonte a lot in terms of like his life i want to hear about him He's so handsome and his voice is so beautiful. I want to hear all about him. He is so handsome. I'm glad that he was in the era he was in, but he would have been the best Barack Obama, like someone to play Barack Obama. Yeah. When when I watch him, I'm like, oh my God, you should have been in his biopic and you're just like, your timing isn't right, but that's okay. Both of them, for both of those guys. For both of them. So Harry Belafonte, born in 1927. He's still alive. He was born in New York City, but he grew up in Jamaica. He grew up in Jamaica, but then came back to the States. So he like has the side of culture to him and he he ends up being really good buddies with Cindy Poitier and that tracks because they had that similar kind of childhood where it was like both raised away from New York came back to New York had a super strong sense of like self and self-worth they grew up in another culture where they had like strong pride in being black and so it's like oh yes uh. so he does this play wins the Tony that gets him into Bright Road which he does with Dorothy Dandridge which sets them both up for this piece so he does several pictures like he's in Bright Road, Carmen Jones, and Island in the Sun, all with Dorothy Dandridge. And Island in the Sun is like, it's an ensemble piece. He's also in the movies Odds Against Tomorrow. And then The Player in 1992, the Robert Altman movie. And he was in Black Klansman in 2018. So he's been doing movies this whole time. Wow, he was? That's dope. Yep. Before this and after this, he was known as the King of Calypso. So to earn money for his acting classes, he studied at the New School with like Sidney Poitier, Marlon Brando, Walter Matthau, all those guys. To earn money for acting classes, he started a nightclub act and it became really popular. And that's how he got into like singing more. And he brought in Calypso because that's what he grew up with being like raised in Jamaica. And like he grew up in these cultures where he like learned Calypso and that became a part of him. So yeah, King of Calypso, he's famous for singing the Banana Boat song, a.k.a. Deo, which they sing in Beetlejuice. Oh my God, Deo. That's Harry Belafonte. I had no idea. That's him. And then the um, Shake, 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 Sonora, Shake, all those songs. That's him. Yes. If you just look up Beetlejuice, he's there. His soundtrack credits are extensive. Oh my God, he is so cute. Oh, I wish I could have married him. Well, he was married three times. One time again, I mentioned he did cheat on his wife with Joan Collins, but the second marriage lasted 47 years and then they got divorced. But now he's married again and they're still together. So there you, you know go. what? That's a beautiful thing. I think that's wonderful. That is how life goes. You don't have to be married to the same person your whole life. I mean, if you do, that's wonderful. But if you don't, I think it makes perfect sense because I'm certainly not the same person that I was 10 years ago. I'll tell you that. Well, and he ultimately just seems like a wonderful human and man. 
Like his whole resume is just like worked with Martin Luther King, was involved in the civil rights movement. Like he's won awards for humanitarian service. He won a Kennedy Center Honors Award. Like he just seems like an incredible, like lovely, kind, wonderful human. Yeah, I'm telling you, my husband is perfect. I'm ready. Hey, Belafonte, why were you not here sooner? No. <laughs> I mean. Later, yeah. But yeah, that's, yeah. But at, he ended up in the 40s before he had a whole career. He joined the Navy and served in World War II, moved to New York. He became friends with Sidney Poitier when they were both unknowns. And they did this really cute thing together where they would scrape their money together and buy a theater ticket and one would go to the first act and come out and explain what happened and then the other would go in for the second act and come out and explain what happened and they take turns that's too cute i can't even believe that and i was like that's such an actor story of like we have no money and then they both end up being like legends (sighs) and they both end up being really good men okay i think that was most of what i wrote about him (laughs) yeah i just reading about him i was like oh you're the best harry belafonte like Oh, that's a really good idea. I feel like I want to do that. Like, just go see half a show with somebody. I think it would drive me nuts, though. I, I don't think I could handle it. You're right. You're I would right. just, I'd want to know too much. Otto Preminger was the director. We don't have to talk too much about him. I mean, because I'm sure I'll, we'll do another show about him at some point. But he was a very prolific, like, I don't want to say experimental director, but he took a lot of risks, especially with subject matter. Like, he does The Man with the Golden Arm, which is, a, like, about drugs and drug addiction. Um, and he likes to tell stories independently. Like he doesn't like to be beholden to studios. So he tries to make things essentially on his own. He stands up for people. Like he's one of the first people to put Dalton Trumbo's name in a screenwriting thing when he was blacklisted. But then again, like he was not great to Dorothy Dandridge. He's one of those complicated men of like, we hear the story a lot. He was an Austrian Jew who grew up in Austria. World War II hit, got the hell out, thank God, came to America. He was a theater director there, so he became a theater director here. No, wait, first, I think he went straight to movies here. He he built a movie career, got married to a woman who had been divorced like 30 minutes prior to him marrying her. Cool. It was like the divorce ink had dried and he was like, we're getting married. And then they end up being estranged for most of their marriage. Some of the movies he's done is like Anatomy of a Murder and Laura was his like big first hit. And I love that movie. I love Laura. The one with Gene Tierney. It's really good. He did Exodus with Paul Newman, so I love that. <laughs> his, his, like, crazy scandal was he dated Gypsy Rose Lee for a while. Um, they Whoa. were, like, kind of in a loose relationship together, and they had a child together, and the child did not know he was the son of Otto Preminger until he was an adult. And then they finally told him. Let me tell you something. Otto seemed to, like, really get around. And he was not attractive, so it's astonishing that he got very attractive people to be into him maybe he was just like really cool like maybe he was not necessarily like hot but like his personality was hot you know i mean he was a progressive dude i will say i remember when i watched that movie introducing dorothy dandridge being like repulsed that she would sleep with him because i was like girl <laughs> stop you're you're halle berry like do you not see he's so much older than you and he's like this gross old white dude like you could Sorry, but that's how it felt when you're watching it. You're like, oh, God, no. Yeah, Dorothy Dandridge, man, we, we got some things to tell you, girl. Pearl Bailey's in this. She's really cool. She's like a famous uh, singer. She's been on Broadway. She's awesome. She was really good friends with Joan Crawford, I read, and I went, oh, that's interesting. Someone was really good friends. Right? Wouldn't you love to see them, like, I don't know, hanging out together? I would like to see them talking shit about someone. I like the pictures of, like, Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald hanging out. 
sure Marilyn Monroe was like, got people to go see Ella Fitzgerald sing all the time. But anyway, I just love the interracial women friendships back in that day. Well, and they're all strong, badass women that are like on a different level than the people necessarily around them. They're not like normal people doing a normal job. They're doing a different kind of right. job. Olga James, Cindy Lou, she was really a Juilliard-trained opera singer, so that's really her voice. Wow. And then Husky Miller was this guy, Joe Adams, who was a radio DJ. Wow, he did a great job. Did a great job. Um, and then we talked about Brock Peters, and then Diane Carroll was in this. Yes. How cool is that? Hey. And she fucked up her audition, apparently, for Carmen. She got so nervous in the room and totally, like, tanked it. Oh my god. Oh my but she still got the movie. She still got the movie. And then um we talked about Marilyn Horn, who's the Carmen voice, Laverne Hutchinson, who's Joe's opera voice. And then Alvin Ailey was an uncredited dancer in it. Whoa. That's amazing. That's a good one. We have all the facts out. Do you have anything about this movie that you like that we didn't talk about that you want to add? I honestly feel like that's all I got for this one. I thought it was really awesome to see. Thank you so much for picking this one. I was kind of embarrassed to not have seen it yet. But I think as a kid, I never saw it because I wasn't into like tragedies. I, I had enough with operas with my mom. Anyway, so I was really happy to have seen it. And it's an awesome piece. I'm really glad you liked it because, I mean, I was really loving it. But I was wondering, like, you know, how it would feel necessarily to be watching a film like we had talked about earlier with this. It's like so cool that it's an all black cast, but like so full of bullshit stereotypes. Yeah. But how could it not? Honestly, like we're talking about something that was made 70 years ago. It makes sense that hopefully... Hopefully we've come a long way since then. So when we take these older pieces and we look at them, I hope we can, I hope we can look at them and say like, oh, this is interesting in the time period, what this would have looked like and how progressive this was for the time instead of being like, wow, for 2020, this really is screwed up, you know what I mean? Which I can <laughs> yeah. also do. <laughs> yeah. I also was like, I wonder how you're going to like the whole opera aspect. But now that I know that you like love opera, because I feel like that would be the deterrent for some people of what are they this is weird like they're singing opera but it's in english and it's like modernish like what's going on but i think people at home if you just stick with it it's so worth it yes they're singing opera you can do it you can handle it they don't sing opera in a way that's like too off-putting i think they do it in a very i want to say contemporary but it's it's a, a pop way of doing like it's not too oh you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying like it's it's a way that you can swallow I think it's beautiful music I think it's the most popular opera ever that ever was Carmen you know half the songs they're like the one that's like da 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 yeah. da 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 you're like I know that it's famous music man and then you put Oscar Hammerstein lyrics on it like there's nowhere to go wrong on this one I wrote on um, one of the lyrics down that I really loved. Um, Harry Belafonte when he's singing that song yes the one about how much he loves her and about how she's changed his life Ugh. I remember at first being like uh oh these lyrics are scaring me because it was like you know you're all I crave but I don't know anything about you and I was like oh come on <laughs> like, but then he says I don't know much about you I don't know much about a shining star and I was like oh ooh, that's such a that's great you're right but it's shot beautifully the music's beautiful that lyric I was like Oscar Hammerstein that's great. They did it. You explained it to us, Oscar. We get it. We get you. Love Oscar. Love that man. I do too. He's so wonderful. He really is responsible for musical theater as we know it. And I don't feel like he gets enough credit for it. I think people think of him in terms of Rodgers and Hammerstein and not necessarily in terms of like 
just how much he actually just created the medium himself just by being like, here's what makes it good. Here's what makes it bad. And then literally, I mean, I know this because I was like a real Sondheim freak for a long time. And like he, in all the books that I read about him, in all my, in all my research about Sondheim. I'm totally with you on this. The way that he would explain things and break things down to Stephen Sondheim kind of opened my eyes about how much he was the one who created what we know as the best of this medium. And so I think anything that he kind of touched is worth taking a look at because he really is the father of this entire genre that is kind of arguably one of the most American activities we have that we created here that other cultures look at and try to do but can't really ever do the way that we do it it's like something that we really came up with here in this country and in a lot of ways he was the one who came up with it so we have a double feature portion of this program this is a hard one to pair because there's like Porgy and Bess which they do Otto Preminger and Dorothy Dandridge have broken up kind of by this point. She's Bess in his version of Porgy and Bess, and it is not great, but it's like, you know, it's an operetta. Sidney Poitier plays Porgy in it. I have never seen it, but I've heard not great things. But (laughs) it would, like, pair well, I guess. It's like that would be the most obvious pair well choice. But also Porgy and Bess, a lot of of people of color do hate it because of, like, the stereotypes. When Audrey McDonald did it, I really liked it. I would also probably say... Since I haven't seen a lot of these, it's like just a shot in the dark of like, check out Bright Road. She was in that with Harry Belafonte. Check out Island in the Sun, the same. Um, I would highly recommend watching Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, the HBO movie with Halle Berry about the life of Dorothy Dandridge, because it's just, I remember it being cool. I hope it holds up. And then um, The Opera Carmen. Those would be like my double features if anyone wanted to watch something else. The Opera Carmen is a good one. I guess I would throw out there, check out, maybe do some research and see if I'm thinking of the right thing. But this movie is definitely called Black Orpheus. And it's definitely along the lines of supernatural woman running from death. So if you're kind of into that sort of like, ooh, this is thrilling and also a little bit dark, check out Black Orpheus. Well, thank you so much for coming on this podcast again and doing this. Thank you for having me. This was so enjoyable. And thank you for exposing me to such amazing features. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Ashley Blanchett. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me. Thanks for listening.